What's happening? Corey Wong here with episode three of the Wong Notes podcast. Today on the show, we have Molly Tuttle. If you are not familiar with Molly Tuttle, get hip! Because she is dope. She's seriously insane. She's got this record that came out last year called When You're Ready. That is a clinic in acoustic guitar playing. Now, I'm hyping her up right now, clearly because she's on my show and because I genuinely like her. She's a great person, too. We had a great conversation. But International Bluegrass Music Awards named her Guitar Player of the Year twice. Twice. Wait, three times? I'm looking at her wiki right now. That's insane. Look, do the work yourself. Just listen to her on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you listen to music. I, I don't know. Go listen to her and find out for yourself. Now, I just want to talk about one little thing before we get going. Molly and I are going to talk a little bit about time feel. And I talk about this sort of thing all the time because I think it is so important. And so many people neglect this part of their practicing and neglect this part of their awareness of self. So what I think people can do to practice timing, people ask me this all the time. How do I get better at time? Record yourself. Play with a metronome. Record yourself and watch it back on the grid. There's so many ways that you can do that right now. GarageBand, Pro Tools, Logic, Ableton, whatever. Professional athletes watch videos of their games, watch videos of their practices to see their movements, to see their motions, to see how they're moving as a team, to analyze themselves. Why don't you do that as a musician? That's my challenge to you this week. Maybe do it with your band, but hey, be kind. If the drummer was telling you you were rushing, but they were actually the one rushing, look, I'm staying out of that one. All right, we're all in search of gear all the time because we're guitar players. We like gear, okay? Musicians in general, they call it gas, gear acquisition syndrome, if you will. Now, let's say you're a little gassy. Okay, sorry, that was bad, but I had to. I got I got one product I want to suggest, a Stratocaster. Now, hey, 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 come on. That seems like the most basic suggestion, but I'll tell you what. Fender's making some dope instruments right now. I've been playing a Highway 1 Stratocaster for the last, I don't know how many years, but I did get this new American Ultra Series guitar. It's really awesome. I mean, it just is. I, and I wouldn't be telling you this unless I actually thought so. You probably seen me on their little ads. They're popping up in your algorithm, which I can make an educated guess on because you're listening to a guitar podcast. So there you go. And I'm not the kind of guy who normally uses a humbucker in the bridge, but this guitar, the humbucker is amazing. It's got this coil tap system where you coil tap it and it splits into a single coil, but it doesn't do that thing that a lot of other coil taps do where it just gets quieter and thinner because it's gone from a humbucker to a single coil. It's got something built into it where it compensates for that, which I love. The other pickups are the ultra noiseless pickups, which are great for session work because you're not getting all the buzz and noise in the background. And especially when you're just playing quiet or if I'm on stage and I don't turn my volume off, I don't get all the same amp buzz because of the lights around or whatever. Great pickups, classic Strat tone, bubbly warm top end. It's got the bite, it's got the power. That Strat is dope. Great guitar, check them out. They got, if you play bass, hey, tell you what, you better believe I got that ultra J bass to get my Jocko Rocco on dumping away these 16s. All right, you're here for the interview. Let's get to it. Molly, thank you so much for joining us today. This is really fun to have you on. I've been on the deep dive. Your guitar playing is sick. 
songwriting, singing. It's insane. You've got so oh. much control on all of those things. So many people strive to have any one of those three tasks and you seem to have them all on lock. So that is so fun. Stoked to have you on. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm such a big fan of yours and this is really exciting. And thanks for checking out my music. Of course. I kind of want to dive in right away mm-hmm. knowing you come from a family of musicians, second generation musician or third. Well, um, I know second third. generation. Yeah. My uh, grandfather played banjo and he's kind of who started the music in my family. He like passed on playing music to my dad who grew up listening to bluegrass. And then I grew up listening to bluegrass and playing with my dad. So kind of started with my grandpa. That's fun. And you've got like a family band. <laughs> yeah, I did have one. Yeah. I haven't played with them in a long time, but as a teenager, I used to play with my two brothers and my dad. And then we had this other friend, AJ Lee, who would play with us and she wasn't related to us, but we met her at bluegrass festivals and we all started playing locally and just kind of traveling around California and playing a little bit. I love that. And I'm sure there was probably some sense of healthy competition within that growing up. You're the eldest child, correct? Yeah, I'm the oldest. So I think I had like I had a bit of a head start on my two younger brothers. Um, so I feel like both of them, they would compete with each other a little bit more. And then I was kind of like a few years older than them. So I was just like I wasn't as much part of the competition. And I was singing and like writing songs, which neither of them we're doing so much when we were younger. Um, but yeah, it was, I think there were moments of competition, especially with my two younger brothers. They always wanted to like play faster than the other one. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. That's kind of the natural tendency we've interviewed. I've interviewed a lot of different people that are legend status, like the George Benson's and the Eric Johnson's Mm -hmm. and some, you know, some of those cats are like, yeah, we all want to play fast when we're young. And now it's just like, I want to play Yeah. (laughs) in general. It's like, Oh, it's just one of those universal things. I know. I mean, I'm still like, I like to play fast, but I don't feel like I have to. And yeah. uh, it's it's nice to see what effect you can have from not playing fast, just playing something that's still really compelling. Totally. And I feel like with bluegrass, that's such a part of it. When you start out, like you just want to play really fast because <laughs> so much of the music is super fast. Yeah. Well, since we're talking about that and, and just that side of it, when I watch a lot of bluegrass players and flat pickers, Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, I'm going to have you kind of define what that term means okay. because I, I've always been kind of confused by that. Let's start with that. What is a flat picker? I, I like, I kind of know what it is just from listening and watching, but like, how is that different than just somebody playing chords or single note lines on an acoustic guitar? Right. I think the term itself is a little bit vague, so I don't exactly know what is and what isn't flat picking, but for me, it brings to mind like the bluegrass style of playing lead on guitar where you're like using a pick and usually like a pretty so I have my Dunlop 207 jazz pick that I've used since I started playing guitar and this is a pretty heavy pick and most flat pickers use a heavier pick and I think the reason for that is just getting like a really powerful like loud tone on usually like a dreadnought guitar or like usually not an arch top so like a flat top guitar and then playing like eighth note leads um, with a pick. So you're like usually using like alternating picking, yeah. pick direction. And um, but yeah, it's hard to exactly pin down what is and what isn't flat picking. But I would think of it as playing leads on fiddle tunes or leads on bluegrass standards. Um, sure. And even going into like folk songs or old time songs too, playing lead on guitar. 
Yeah, that's kind of what I thought it was. I'm mm-hmm. glad that you're not like, well, everybody should know that it's this. It's like, okay, <laughs> cool. What's interesting to me, if I'm listening to it, whoa, that's super fast. There's no doubt it's impressive guitar stuff. But then when I watch it, it doesn't always look if the sound was off and the average person was just watching. I don't think they would notice like, whoa, Molly is shredding right now. <laughs> but as soon as you turn the sound on, there's some sort of wizardry going on. Yeah, there are definitely like kind of certain, um, I don't want to say tricks, but certain like techniques that people use that I think would give that look of that you're not actually working that hard and like tons of notes (laughs) are just spewing out. Um, I think one would be cross picking where you're like playing across multiple strings. So like usually you would take three strings and I use this a lot where you hold down some sort of chord shape and maybe you're moving a little bit within the chord so like playing a melody on the low string of the three strings that you're playing on and just alternating between those three and you can play that pretty fast and you're barely moving your left hand and maybe people see your right hand moving a little bit across the three strings but it's not like you're um, moving all up and down the neck but you're you can still um, play lots of notes and I like to use that a lot just to fill out chord tones especially when i'm like playing by myself or playing in a smaller ensemble it really helps you hear all the chords of the songs changing versus like i think since acoustic guitar and since like dreadnought guitars um don't have very much sustain people kind of find ways to fill out the spaces a lot instead of just playing a melody and then like strumming in between you could use playing across different chord tones And then, yeah, people use hammer-ons and pull-offs a lot. And I've seen flat pickers use that to like get triplets where they'll pick two notes and then hammer on the next note. And it's a technique that makes it sound like if you get good enough at it, people can't really tell you're doing pull-offs and hammer-ons and it just sounds like you're playing like incredibly fast triplets. That's cool. So with the cross-picking thing, are you alternate picking with your right hand or is is it sweeping? And then the second question of that is, you're just holding a chord shape, but you're moving a line on one note. Can you dive a little deeper into that? Yeah, totally. So the cross picking, I do alternating. So I would be like, if I'm playing on three strings, it'd be like down, up, down, and then go back to the bottom of the three strings, up, down, up, um, and kind of just rolling on that three note pattern. Um, yeah. But some people do sweeping where they'll go like down, down, up, down, down, up, like Tony Rice does that a lot he does more sweeping Got it. Um, patterns but i'm like so stuck in the alternating pick direction thing I'm that i way. can play a lot cleaner and a lot faster with alternating but i do like the sound of the sweeping notes it sounds so clean and very fluid and then yeah with cross picking let's say i'm playing like a g triad and cross picking over those three strings but the melody has like um like a fourth in it If I was playing like a G triad starting on the third string, second string, first string, then I might be like cross picking and then I want to go to the fourth for the melody. And so I just put one finger down on like the C note and then get that note and then maybe go back to the B note. And that's a way to um, get some of the melody in in between the cross picking. So it doesn't work if the melody is like really fast and complicated, but especially on like vocal pieces where they're more held out melodies you can kind of get the melody in between the cross picking notes and a lot of times it creates like a syncopated sound that's really cool with the melody because you're playing like a three note pattern if you're playing it over a song in four four 
um, it kind of syncopates the melody, if that makes sense. Yeah, if you're playing a three-note pattern in 16th notes, mm -hmm. like a four-based rhythm with a three-note pattern. Yeah. yeah, that sounds super cool. And that's, is that like a banjo? Did that originate with banjo or is that? I don't know. I kind of feel like guitar players in bluegrass like stole it from the banjo playing because flat picking kind of came after like the original bluegrass bands like Bill Monroe and Flatt and Scruggs and then Clarence White came and really like pioneered flat picking and people had been doing it a little bit before him too but he like created this whole sound of bluegrass flat picking that so many people um, took stuff from and he did a lot of cross picking so I almost feel like the banjo had to have influenced it in some way and you hear those really similar roles with the banjo three-finger banjo playing that you hear when people cross pick on guitar yeah and i know that some people talk about your right hand technique you and i both have somewhat of an unorthodox right hand mm -hmm. i don't swear by my right hand technique it's just like the way that it felt natural yeah. for your right hand technique i was watching some videos and the one thing that seems kind of standard amongst guitar players in general, and I do this too, is anchoring my wrist versus floating my wrist. Is there a certain time? I mean, I'm sure at this point you don't even think about it, but if you were to try to break it down, is there a time where you anchor your wrist more and does that change the sound for you? Yeah, I anchor my wrist when I'm playing leads and then when I switch to like strumming, usually I'm floating yeah. my wrist. And then if I'm like strumming and playing like a little run, um, in the rhythm part of a song, I might still float and play the lead with a floating wrist. But yeah, I'm kind of like you, like I don't swear by my right hand technique either. I like never really gave it much thought. Yeah. And yeah, people do comment on it a lot, but I do anchor my wrist on the bridge. And then when I'm playing on the low strings, I feel like it's almost a little awkward because I kind of like move it back onto the bridge. And then when I play on the high strings, I'm kind of like resting it on the lower strings almost. Yeah. But like just pretty lightly, I'm not like clamping it down onto the guitar. I wanna I wanna transition bluegrass and old time music, folk music. Mm -hmm. They're different things. Okay. Western swing is very different from swing music. Western mm -hmm. swing is different from old time music, different from bluegrass music. There is so much catalog of bluegrass music. When I talk to my friends that are fiddle players or you know, play in the bluegrass scene in general, it's like, oh, do you know this tune? This, 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 this. It's like Oh my gosh, there are so many tunes. There is an entire world where I don't know a single song. It's intimidating. Like in a similar way where it's like when I went to school, my teachers were like, all right, if you want to do the jazz thing, you got to have 300 jazz standards memorized. I'm like mm -hmm. I got to just magically have 300 jazz standards that I didn't grow up listening to memorized. Like I'll play Weezer's Blue Album front to back on the guitar, but I can't, I, like I just, I don't know 12 versions of Autumn Leaves. And I feel like the bluegrass <laughs> world is a similar thing where there's so much material. There's so much stuff. Mm -hmm. Standards. Yeah. There's old standards, new standards. Talk to me about, okay, this is kind of two questions. Bluegrass in general, what kind of makes that different from old time music and blah, 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 the different things I said. And then mm -hmm. also the catalog. I'm so curious. Yeah. So I think bluegrass versus old time um one of the differences that I think made bluegrass just kind of evolve differently was that um, in the early days, like with Bill Monroe playing bluegrass, it was all developed around people with individual mics. So there was like 
him singing the lead with some harmony pe- harmony singers and um, people taking solos into mics and like you being able to hear each individual soloist. So then that um, kind of evolved into people like improvising solos and it being more of like spotlighting each player individually. And it was something to like perform on stage. And old time was more dance music where people were playing for dances and you're more focused on like grooving all together as like a whole and just playing one tune over and over again people aren't really improvising you're kind of just trying to blend with the other players and usually in old time it'll be the fiddle player playing the melody over and over again and um when I've like been to old time jams you're just focused on the groove and all trying to lock in together and it's really fun it's almost like this meditative thing where if you get really locked in you like lose track of time and you might play one tune for like 20 minutes Um, and bluegrass, it's more like you're, if you go to a bluegrass jam, you're passing around solos, you're listening to other people's solos and, um, like appreciating their ideas. And there is a bit more of like a com- competitive element to it too, sure. where like, um, I feel like some people go into jams and try to like one up each other with solos and you're like trading back and forth. Um, but yeah, those are some of the differences. And then like, as far as songs, um, I feel like a lot of a lot more bluegrass songs have vocals and there will be like a lead vocalist and harmonies coming in on the chorus usually. And people are still writing so many bluegrass songs. A lot of the um, early ones were written by Bill Monroe and he wrote like so many songs and tunes throughout his life. And those became the standards. And, um, but yeah, other people have taken that form and written a lot of songs and old time is more like digging up old traditional material and trying to find like field recordings. Yeah. just trying to find stuff people haven't heard before to make it new versus like writing a new song. Yeah. Is there an um, instru- but, instrumentation that's different between the two? Oh yeah, there is. I think um, it's a little looser with old time. I think especially like in the original, like in the old field recordings, you hear all sorts of instruments that people were just kind of stuff people had on hand. Basically yeah. you might hear like spoons or a washboard or, um, but when you go to somewhere like a bluegrass or like an old time festival, like there's this one called cliff top, um, that's in West Virginia. And every year people go just to jam. There's like no playing on stages. People just jam. And you'll usually see like a claw hammer banjo, which is different from bluegrass and bluegrass. You have the three finger banjo with the resonator and old time you have a claw hammer banjo mm-hmm usually doesn't have a resonator um, and fiddles and guitar and bass. And that's like the core of old time. And then maybe there'll be some people singing and playing um, and you might see a mandolin here and here or there, but like in bluegrass mandolin is really essential to the sound. And then you have usually just one fiddle and with old time, you might have like three fiddles. Um, but with bluegrass, the core of the band would be mandolin fiddle bluegrass banjo. So playing with, finger picks playing three finger style and bass guitar. I think that's it. And then sometimes you'll have a dobro too. So how do you approach playing guitar in those situations differently? Yeah, that's a good question with bluegrass. Well, obviously like on guitar, I'm taking solos in bluegrass and old time I might play along with the melody sometimes like play along with the fiddles, especially if there's another guitar player, I might do that. But um, a lot of times in old time jams, they don't actually really want the guitar to be playing melody. Um, but then as far as feel with bluegrass, um, in the rhythm playing, I'm, I'll be doing more like punchy sounding rhythm, maybe using more up strums, um, to accentuate certain gaps in like a singing part or just, um, create more dynamics with my rhythm playing. 
And I'll also be playing a lot more ahead of the beat, which is what I'm used to playing, like kind of just in front of the beat. And usually the other instruments will be doing that as well. Like the mandolin might be chopping a little bit in front of the beat. So I'll be kind of like pushing it a little bit ahead in bluegrass. And then with old time, this is actually part of the reason I love going to old time jams. It's it's a bit of a challenge for me to just really lay back a lot more because they're not like pushing ahead. They're all got it. Um, usually in an old time gym, they're just sitting right on the yeah. beat. Um, so I'll listen to the banjo. If there's a bass, I'll listen to the bass and try to just like lay back. And I'm also, my strumming even changes because in an old time jam, I'll play like a slower strum where you can hear the individual yeah. strings a little more. And that kind of creates a softer like sound that's more on the beat. And with bluegrass, I'm playing like a really quick, punchy strum where the notes just kind of ring out as one note. This almost. is gold. This is what I'm talking about. <laughs> So the time the time <laughs> feel is different in old time versus bluegrass as well. I see I didn't yeah. I didn't know that. I mean, you know, a lot of people think it's just like, oh, it's a fast song or a slow song. I am very I'm 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 a time guy. So and I'm a rhythm guy. So I <laughs> love paying attention to the nuance of time feel. And it it is interesting that in certain styles of music, you know if somebody's legit in that style by how they feel the time. And that's cool that yeah. thing. And also hearing the sweep of the strings versus just hitting them all at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing is old time, the guitar, I feel like the, the improvisation on guitars with bass runs. So you're like connecting like a G chord to a C chord. You might play like a really long run to get to the C chord or play like a run in between, but you're not like playing leads. Yeah. Um, and all of that was just my old time music friends being like, Hey, you're like rushing way too much. <laughs> like, we can't groove with you. You're like way ahead of the yeah. beat. And so I had to be like, okay, I'll try <laughs> not to do that. Yeah. In my band, uh, n- not involved in in the Corey Wong band, the bass player, mm-hmm. he's from D.C. and he feels he feels time just a little bit behind where the mm-hmm. drummer and I feel time, and he's always like, "Man, I'm, I have to think so much harder when I play this music, but it feels so much better." Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, man, it's yeah. just it's how we feel to the time right here, and it uh, totally it's fun to like think about time in a different way and try to play a different way than you're used to. It's so subtle, but it's really satisfying. I love that. So as far as the bluegrass, well, I guess bluegrass and old time, what are like three tunes of each one? I got to, I got to shed some bluegrass. I got to shed some old time. Now that I have a little more knowledge, give me, give me three bluegrass tunes. I need to learn, especially if it's like, Hey, Corey, you want to show up at these jams, dude, you got to know these three. Okay. I would say bluegrass, um you should learn big mon <laughs> that's a classic yeah. salt creek is another good one and then maybe one that's in a different key you could learn um soldier's joy would be really classic or like saint anne's real those are both in yeah. d um yeah those are those are some good ones for bluegrass and then for old time some of my favorites are um there's this old time tune called richmond that's a really good tune Another one is Lost Girl. I like to play that a lot. I even like try to get bluegrass people to learn that to play in bluegrass jams. I'm like trying to cross it yeah. over <laughs> bluegrass. Um, and another one would be Chinkapin Hunting, which is a fun one as well. So what do you consider yourself? Bluegrass or old time? I mean, you're obviously your own thing, but what do you identify more with? I identify more with bluegrass because that's what I grew up playing. And, and like I said, like my natural default is to play in bluegrass mode and then I kind of have to think about it when I go to an old time jam and that's not to say I don't love old time and I ha- I've 
I grew up with old time as well, but definitely like I learned more in the bluegrass tradition. I know more bluegrass tunes and yeah. All right, folks, this is a fun conversation. We got to pause for a second. I told you about the Stratocaster at the beginning of this episode. Now I'm here to tell you about that American Ultra Telecaster. That thing is dope. All the bite, all the crunch, everything that you want from rock to country. I use a telly for that Prince rhythm sound. It's great. And the American Ultra right now is my axe of choice. Okay, let's get back to it. Claw hammer technique. I saw you doing some claw hammer stuff, which I think is really cool. And it's such a weird technique to watch. It's kind of the McCartney two finger finger picking thing. And it's kind of also like Lewis Johnson slap bass. And it's also (laughs) there's there's so many weird things. And my understanding is that it's index middle down and upstrokes and then the thumb just thumping the bottom strings. Can you talk a little bit, break down your claw hammer technique or the claw hammer technique. Maybe you can do a better job describing what it is. I'll try. Um, it's like this banjo technique. So it this technique was actually like completely stolen from the banjo and it's used in old time music. So music that came before bluegrass and yeah, just old time banjo players and usually in the style of music they'll be playing with a fiddle player and they might play an instrumental piece but there's not really like improvisation like there is with bluegrass and a lot of the songs with vocals are traditional songs that are really old and so old that people don't know where they came from hardly anymore so you pretty much had it right except the index and middle finger never go up on the strings you're always strumming or plucking down with like your index and middle fingernail and then as you pluck down the thumb like catches on one of the lower strings and usually I'm playing in um, an open G tuning where I tune the D string down to a G so I'll catch my thumb on the G string and then when the hand comes back up I'll usually pluck the G string. Is your thumb stroke then an upstroke or a downstroke? It's an upstroke so I had or sorry no it's a down <laughs> it's a downstroke getting confused um, yeah so the index middle finger go down on the higher strings and then the thumb when you're bringing your hand back up, the thumb just kind of plucks the lower string down. It's, an, it's normally an upbeat, but a downstroke. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of confusing. Um, someone showed me recently like a basic slap bass thing, and it seems like the complete opposite of claw hammer guitar, yeah, which I've always totally. thought it looked really similar, but I'm like, wow, it's actually the opposite. <laughs> yeah, because normally the thumb hits, hits first and establishes the thing. Mm-hmm. For the claw hammer, the what is it? The bum ditty pattern. Mm-hmm. Boom, boom, thumb. Boom, yeah. boom, thumb. Yeah. It's like one and a two and a three and a four and a. Yeah. So it's the bum ditty pattern, which is like the first one people kind of learn um, to play songs with. Is it would be like index, and the trick is like even when you're playing with your index and um, middle finger and the fingernails like hitting the strings your thumb still catches on the low string. So I'm doing index. The thumb catches, but you don't play the low note. Got it. Like index, index, thumb, index, index, thumb. And that just keeps the rhythm going. So then you can get the freedom to really play those low strings whenever you want. It's pretty cool. And I would encourage anybody listening who hasn't, just look up Molly Tuttle claw hammer. (laughs) And I'm sure something will show up. Or what's, I, I saw somebody of you doing it at a live session or something. What's the song off your newest record that has it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the song I did on my newest record is called Take the Journey. 
And yes. yeah, I do Clawhammer guitar on that. That's the only one on the new record with Clawhammer. Since we're talking about your record, you write such great tunes. Thank and you. Some people don't always recognize songwriting as a skill that needs to be worked on. Mm-hmm. It's like, of course, if you want to get good at guitar, you spend a lot of hours playing the guitar and you shed that. You want to get yeah. great at singing, you spend a lot of time singing, you practice singing. But some people, for whatever reason with songwriting, think that it's this other you can songwrite or you can't. Mm-hmm. And I heard that you were taking songwriting classes as a teenager, cranking out tunes, learning learning the craft <laughs> of songwriting, actually going through the motions. Can you speak into a, a little bit into what your journey has been as a songwriter and then just what are some of the things that you encourage for people that are trying to figure out how to write songs? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I, I feel like I had the same thing that you were describing where I like played guitar and sang, but writing a song felt so scary to me. And it's like, you never know what's going to come out. You kind of have to just make it up out of nowhere. And it feels like this intangible thing. But um, when I was in high school, I started taking a few classes at a local community college just to like get high school credits for some classes. And I wanted more time to play music. So I was taking these college classes just to have less, um, basically less like hours of class in the week. So there was this one songwriting class that happened once a week and I decided to sign up for it just to maybe like get me going writing songs since I didn't really know where to start. Um, And it was really cool. It was basically, we met once a week and it was, I think it was in the evenings. There was a lot of people who weren't in school anymore, but like to write songs. And the teacher wouldn't um, really structure it that much. He might give us a prompt, like write two verses and a chorus of a song. And then we'd come in the next week and everyone would play their songs and people would critique. And usually it was like all positive critique. So it was a really like safe space to just start writing songs and you had to write something every week. And I remember like, that's how I ever, that's how I wrote like the first song that I ever wrote. I wrote for that class and came in and everyone was really positive. So that was, it made me want to write more songs and start sharing them with people because it was just a really nice environment to start writing songs in. And it was good that it gave me the accountability where I had to write a song every week. And then I went to Berkeley College of Music and started taking more songwriting classes there. And they were a lot more structured they would actually talk about the craft of songwriting and like rhyme schemes and different types of rhymes and um, how some songs like the verse, you have your chorus and then the verse will like reframe the chorus each time. So it like changes meaning slightly or adds meaning um, each time you sing the chorus. And that was really cool. I think some of that was like, it got in my head a little bit. And then I had started to have this like strong inner critic that I've had to Uh. sort of, try to make quieter since leaving Berkeley in a way, but it was cool to learn all those. There were more rules of songwriting than I'd ever really learned before. And some of those, as you said at the beginning, rules are meant to be broken. So that's been the struggle since leaving is I'm like, I just want to write freely. Um, And then, yeah, my first EP after I left college, I wrote mostly on my own. And then since moving to Nashville, I've done more co-writing. So my last album I wrote, like half on my own and then half with other people, which was a cool new experience too. So up until then, you hadn't really been doing much collaborative writing? Not really at all. Yeah. I always just wrote on my own. I did like one or two when I was in college at Berkeley, but yeah, I did a lot more after moving to Nashville. 
And that can be a learning experience, learning mm-hmm. how to write with other people. Yeah. Not just on your own freedom of a time, like your own free timeline. Mm-hmm. What was that? What's that transition like for you starting to write with other people? And what are some of the challenges and what are some of the big wins that you get from writing with other people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were definitely challenges at first and challenges that I still find, especially when I'm writing with someone brand new who I've never even met before at times. Um, I think at first I just had a really hard time letting myself say my ideas that might be really stupid. And sometimes, you know, they're stupid and just saying it will a like get it out of your mind. So you don't keep thinking it because sometimes it'll just keep popping back into your head. And then B, sometimes it gives the other person an idea that's actually really good. So just learning that it's part of the process to, the ideas that if you were by yourself, you might write down or just keep inside your head and not like ever show someone else just actually being willing to show that other person yeah. who sometimes is a complete stranger. or Sometimes it's someone that you like really admire and have wanted to write songs with for a long time. And you want them to think that you're cool and have good <laughs> ideas. Um, but that's just part of it. And everyone has some ideas that are great and some ideas that aren't great. Um, and then the other, I think, problem at first with it um or I guess challenge at first was just the time constraint and sometimes I felt like with my songs I wanted to go deeper and find like a deeper meaning of the song and sometimes it can feel like you're just cranking out a song and at the end it feels a little bit more surface level than if you had spent like days going into it on your own when you when you do those songwriting sessions I've done a lot of songwriting sessions in Nashville where it's like Okay, lyrics guy, music guy, track guy. Mm. And it's like, you know, you're kind of producing the songs as you're writing them. What's your process for mm-hmm. that? Yeah, I've actually never done it that way where there is like a someone producing it and a lyrics person and music person. I think that would be really fun, but I've always done it just like sitting with someone with guitars and getting a little voice memo at the yeah. end. I don't know. That would be a really cool way. And I feel like that would help me focus too. If I had like one job, like work on the music or work on the sure. mix. Well, normally they intertwine, but the the one drawback mm-hmm. to that sometimes is that like you get distracted by like the person doing the track will have a cool sound. It's like, Oh, this sounds mm-hmm. cool. It's like, well, is it a yeah. good song though? You know, right. so sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you end up masking the song by just having it sound cool, you know, so it it can be great. There's, there's ups and downs, of course, to either side of it. Okay. I have a question about playing this music live acoustic instruments, live the electric thing I've got down. You plug in, you go with acoustic instruments. There's so much more to it. You're, you're fighting against potential feedback. If you're using monitors, especially if you're playing Mm -hmm. loud or if you're playing in a bigger room, what are you using now? Yeah. I'm using, yeah, and now I'm like, I haven't toured in a while and it's always changing. So I'm trying to remember my last setup. (laughs) Um, On my guitars, I have K&K pickups that I've had for a long time. And then I'm using um, a Felix Grace preamp into a Tone Dexter, which is like, yeah, This thing. Love the Felix. Yeah. (laughs) I just bought this. I'm interrupting you. Sorry. I just bought this Felix because I was playing on live from here. And oh, yeah. everybody had these. Critter Critter yes. had it. Mike Elizondo had it playing upright bass. Chris Thiele had it mm-hmm. on his mandolin. I'm like, what do these guys know that I don't? I got to get one of <laughs> these. These guys sound so sick. Of course, I don't want to credit the wand. You got to credit the wizard. But 
I mean, they're some of the best musicians alive. Yeah, and that thing is really complicated. I once knew how to use it, and now I kind of just like put it all in the middle, and it sounds fine. Cool. Um, <laughs> and so I put that, and then run that through my Tone Dexter, which is like a mic modeling thing um, that I just got pretty recently. And you like basically plug it into a mic and play through the mic, and then it takes your pickup signal and changes that to the mic signal. And I like that because it makes it sound a little more acoustic than just straight through the Felix. Um, But the Felix kind of like beefs up the tone of the tone dexter a little bit more and prevents feedback and stuff, especially in bigger rooms. So I'm just using those two things right now. Um, And I've I've been experimenting with clip-on mic as well, but I don't really have a good one yet. I was thinking about getting a DPA, but I've been using little clip-on mics every now and then if I can borrow one. Um, cause that's like my missing piece. I kind of want more of an acoustic sound, especially for the claw hammer when I'm like totally. playing kind of percussive, the uh, having like an actual mic helps a lot with that, but then you run into feedback oh, yeah. and weird phase things too. So your tone is insane on your records. Oh, thanks. It's got all the bright it needs, but it's, it's got such a warmness to it and such an even tone. What do you use for a mic when you're recording? <laughs> I don't remember Ryan Hewitt engineered my last record and he produced it and he's amazing. He used so many different mics on my guitars and I don't remember what they were, but right now I'm doing home recordings. I'm working on a new project and I'm just using an SM7B with a 50, <laughs> SM57 hey, yeah. and it sounds okay. It like sounds fairly good. I think they sound great. I love the SM7. Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned earlier your, your picks. You use those little black, uh, mm-hmm. the Dunlop jazz picks. I was, mm-hmm. I did not know that, that that style and the flat picking thing. Critter showed me his picks. He has like a little tackle box of picks. But oh, yeah. uh, he uses a really thick pick. And I was, su- I was mm-hmm. surprised. But after playing, I've been trying to use one. Because I use kind of like a medium. Weird, I use these Dava picks. They have like a rubber okay. hold. Thing. Oh, they're kind cool. of they're weird but uh, oh, yeah it's like two picks. yeah it's <laughs> it's weird but it when i play with those thicker picks it's got actually a warmer tone to it but it doesn't like when mm-hmm. i play my rhythm thing like the funk rhythm thing it doesn't I, I need a little more give on the pick but on the flat picking yeah. thing i'm i'm starting to to dive into the the thick picks that's cool you use that pick for everything depends like I've used this pick for so long and I love the tone of it so then I always come back to it because I just like I'll experiment with other picks and they just don't sound quite as good but I've been playing a little bit of electric since I've been home and I have I just got a telly nice <laughs> and that this pick does not sound good on that so I've been using just like random uh just like random picks I've collected through the years I don't even know what kinds they are but like I don't know I got this one somewhere and it's pretty thin so i've been using those on the electric um and then every now and then i like using a thinner pick like for recording or something just because it gives some more like jangly tone yeah. or something gives more of the shaker sound on mm-hmm. that. Yeah, yeah that's cool a a violin player or fiddle players a lot of times <laughs> they just have one instrument you know like <laughs> I, I have a friend who plays cello they have one instrument and that's it for me you know as guitar players mm-hmm. we like we like having gear and it seems yeah. a little bit in between with people that primarily play acoustic music. It's like, I got this one guitar that I love. Or it's like, yeah, I got this guitar and maybe a couple. Do you have one guitar you swear by? 
Um, not really right now. I used to have an old Martin D18 that was 1944. So it was like a vintage Martin that was really nice. Um, but then it got too hectic trying to tour with it and it kind of like got a little damaged on the road and stopped sounding as good because I had all this work done on it and that was sad. So then I sold that and I kind of became disillusioned with <laughs> having old guitars, even though I love them. So now I just have, I mean, not just, I have some amazing new guitars um, from like the pre-war guitar company and from Thompson guitar, Preston Thompson guitar company. And they're so good. Like they sound like old guitars cool. and I love them, but I have a few different ones that I play. Like I have, um, a Preston Thompson Brazilian Rosewood one and then a Preston Thompson mahogany one and then a pre-war mahogany and a pre-war Brazilian Rosewood. And those four are like my main ones that I'll play live and I play a lot when I'm home, but they're awesome. Okay, when I hear you say Brazilian Rosewood, I tense up. I tense up because when you're traveling, I've heard horror stories of people like, don't travel with Brazilian Rosewood because they'll steal it at the airport and they're going to tag it and they're going to put it in like, they'll like confiscate it. Yeah. Are you worried about that? <laughs> Or are you just like, no, 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 it's um, not Brazilian rosewood. <laughs> no, I actually don't. So I think like they're Brazilian rosewood. People just, it's like old. So people just had it sitting around and then like gave it to the guitar yeah. companies to make guitars with. So thankfully, I don't think they're like going and chopping down Brazilian yeah, 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 yeah. rosewood for guitars. But still, I think it's a little sketchy to travel yeah. with. Um, so you can get paperwork um, for like a travel exemption, like proving that it's not like sketchy Brazilian rosewood and they'll let you, but I don't have that. So I just don't travel internationally with mine. I'll bring my mahogany okay. guitars when I go, but through this in the U S I'll bring my Brazilian. Got rosewood. it. Okay. I was, I was curious about that. I don't have, I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, some, those guitars sound so good. And uh, yeah, they're really nice. That, that is what I had heard though. Is like, if it's, certified old Brazilian rosewood, it's fine. Mm -hmm. like, you know, you're, you're grandfathered in to being allowed to have it or whatever, but. Yeah. And both the companies, Thompson and pre-war, I think they offer that, like they'll cool. get you the paperwork and stuff, but I just haven't, I'm like lazy and haven't done it. So I just don't bring them internationally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. I, when we close out here, I just got three boom, gut shot questions pertaining to gear. Because, you know, we've talked about gear a little bit now, but guitar players listening, they, 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 they like gear. People like gear, right? We as guitar yeah. players, we love gear. Piece of gear that everybody's got to have around uh, 20 bucks or less. What's one piece of gear, 20 bucks or less-ish, that everybody needs? Hmm. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say a capo. <laughs> nice. For what reason? I for like what my... reason for you? Um, for me, it just allows me to play in whatever shape, like chord shape I want up and down the neck. And especially also if I'm playing with another guitar player, I can like cable really high and like play super high, like ringy, jangly stuff over them. And that sounds really pretty. So I think it just allows you to get so many different sounds. And I like this little chub capo that I have. Um, yeah. I think I have one of those right here. Nice. I yeah, that's the same yeah. one. I, I don't necessarily swear by any capo. Yeah, I don't really either. The G7th <laughs> like one, this. that one's kind of cool too. That one I could just yeah, throw that cool. on and it doesn't go sharp. Totally. Those are really nice. You can like make them not clamp down super yeah. hard. I have one of those somewhere around here. Yeah, that one's great. <laughs> okay, second question. Piece of gear, couple hundred bucks-ish. Everybody's got to have it. Hmm. Ooh. Uh, 
I would say like a little recording thing, like a USB mic. I have an Audio Technica one, and then I have the Zoom recorder. But also, you can get a pretty good guitar case for like two hundred dollars. I have a Hiscox case. I don't like endorse them or anything, but um, their cases are pretty inexpensive, and it'll protect your guitar if you go on a flight. I like both of those answers. You snuck in too. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll allow it. We'll allow it because. Cause I love those yes. answers. The recording thing. That's cool. That's, that's an interesting. Thing. Come back to me with this case though. It's a couple hundred bucks. I thought all like the acoustic travel cases were like two grand. Yeah. I've like held off buying one of those cause they're so expensive. They're like, they're a few thousand dollars and I don't know the science behind it, but I just feel like my case, like my Hiscox case, it's pretty hard and it has foam and it's like, it doesn't squeeze too tightly around my guitar. Sometimes I'm afraid if I get a custom molded case, it'll like be squeezing my guitar too much and sure. there's no room for it to like move around if it gets dropped. So I've never had my guitar damaged. The cases themselves don't last forever. Like I had one that lasted like only a few years and then I'm on my second one now and it's lasted pretty well, but my guitars have never had issues. And I have friends who put their guitars in the most expensive cases and they get totally yeah. slashed. So I'm like, I'm not, I don't know. I just would rather have, not spend all the money and like still not know if my guitar is yeah. going get messed up. Traveling around the world with my electric, I check it in my mono soft case. Oh, nice. Now I don't, I don't, I don't say for everybody to do this. I use a strat. It's a bolt on neck. If some, if it gets mm -hmm. weird, like, Oh, I arrived in Paris and the next, like a little weird, I can just kind of like, Ugh, and it kind of goes yeah. back in place. Um, but I, I don't know what it is. Anybody, any of my friends who have had guitars ruined have only been in flight cases. I know. That's how I What's feel too. I have like a secret um, conspiracy theory that they're like <laughs> not actually the best ones. My, my thought is, and I've, cause I've watched, I've flown so much the last few years. I'm watching the baggage handlers. I'm trying to think mm -hmm. about the baggage handling psychology. And oh, when you yeah. watch them, oh, Huge case looks really sturdy. Let's use it as the base of this entire thing. And then they put the, mm -hmm. you know, the flight case at the bottom and they stack everything on top of it. <laughs> of course, because that looks like the most sturdy big thing. Yeah. But then when they pull out my mono case, clearly it's a guitar and it's in a soft case. Mm -hmm. And if the person has <laughs> even some sense of a soul inside them, they're not going to put that at the bottom. They're going to put it at the top Yeah, exactly. or on the side. That's my theory. I don't know how true it is. That's but, a really good theory. But I, I, yeah, I'll need to start watching those baggage people and see what they're doing with different yeah, cases. We'll, we'll do a whole case study. Yes. <laughs> sorry, sorry. That'll be the next yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could do a whole book. Uh, we're going to yeah. move on. Last question. Third question. <laughs> Piece of gear that everybody needs. Price is no issue. Price, price is nothing. <laughs> You're Bill Gates, you're Warren Buffett. What's one piece of gear everybody needs? Mm, that's a good question. Um, hmm. Okay, I have to, this is kind of like, I don't know. This is a answer that's more based on like being sentimental and loving this gear. It's like this little string winder that this guy um, at Griffin Stringed Instruments in Palo Alto where I grew up, he makes, they're called Frank's Cranks. And he makes them out of cool like vintage pens and the most genius thing about the string winder is he like molds the plastic at the end. So it's molded to your guitar tuners and it won't like scratch your guitar headstock. Like a lot of them yeah. when you're tuning 
your guitar up, it kind of like bangs your guitar a bunch. And he was noticing that all these old guitars they had in the guitar shop that he works at had like these scratches all over the headstock. So he made this tuner and it's awesome. It's like the Cadillac of string winders. <laughs> okay, now I'm just, okay, this is your no no limit on price thing. A string winder is your answer to a no limit on price thing. <laughs> I am curious now, how much does this thing cost? It's like a hundred dollars. So it's okay. actually all right, not all right. yeah, yeah, yeah. like crazy. All right. If I was going to go like no limit on price, like anything I would want, I would say like a 30s Martin D18 probably. Why the D18? I think I really like mahogany guitars. They just sound really classic to me. And I love rosewood guitars too, but I feel like if I had to choose between the two, I would choose mahogany. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This is really fun. I'm such a fan of you and uh, can't wait to see you in person sometime. Good luck with handling the rest of quarantine. Oh, you too. Thanks so much for having me. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye. There you go. Molly Tuttle. Tell you what, if you don't have any experience playing bluegrass, playing folk music, playing acoustic guitar, give it a shot. I think it's fun to try practicing different genres that you don't normally do because it challenges your brain in a different way. It ends up challenging your fingers in a different way. And musically, you start to think about other things that you might be able to bring back to your home genre or whatever you want to call it. So thanks for joining us today. Come back next week where we have Eric Johnson, the EJ. I'm stoked about that. Cool dude. Much more chill than I expected him to be. He's a meditator. Hey, side note, got to slip this one in. Speaking of meditations, I got a new record out with John Batiste called Meditations. Check it out. <laughs>